purposely sunk to swell its wood and seal its joints. After a week below the surface, it is brought ashore by a community of fishermen, and a celebration unfolds to toast their newly restored vessel. A prized fishing boat is sunk underwater, but it will come up again and be celebrated, restored. It's a journey that includes time at the bottom, but a journey that will end in celebration. This photo, this image, this journey, if we can hold that in our mind or think about it, it helps us enter our passage this morning. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6. We started last week, and these chapters are called the Ark Narrative. And in this narrative, there is the journey of the Ark of God that goes into captivity and comes back out. Before we continue to think about what that is and read our passage, it's good to ask, what is the Ark? What is the Ark? We could talk for a long time about the Ark. It was central to Israel's identity and worship, but it was a chest covered in gold, and it contained the Ten Commandments given to Moses at Mount Sinai, contained a jar of manna, the heavenly bread that God gave in the wilderness, and the rod of Aaron, the staff of power. These objects testified to the exodus, God freeing his people, and they testified to the covenant that God entered into with Israel, that you will be my people and I will be your God. But along with the ark representing this covenant, it also represented God's special dwelling presence with his people. So this is part of God's promise. Now, I don't just give you laws, but I dwell with you. And the ark, especially the top of the ark, which was called the mercy seat or the place of atonement, That was the representation of God's dwelling, the holy God dwelling with his people. It was so special to the worship and to the temple of God. It's important for us to grasp that the ark represented God's presence. If we don't grasp that, then the rest of our passage will be hard to understand. It might be hard to understand anyway, but it'll be especially hard. It represented God's presence. And last week we saw the start of this journey of the ark The Israelites bring it from the temple to the field of battle, thinking that if they bring it, it will help them against their enemies. But they are defeated, and the ark is captured. To go back to my opening image, that photo, the ark is sunk. The downward journey continues as the Philistines who captured it take it back to their land, and they put it in the temple of their chief god, Dagon. But this is not the end of the journey. In our passage, what we'll see in a mysterious manner that the ark representing God faces and overcomes the Philistines and faces and overcomes their god, Dagon. Becomes victorious over what tries to hold it. So it's worth, before we read, though, to note that the Bible is an ancient book. I mentioned this last week. And there are times, passages, when we feel our distance from the text. Times when it feels strange. And it's possible that in our chapters, this arc narrative, that we will feel that. And so what is it that I'm hoping that we'll see? What, what will we see in our passage? Well, I hope that last week, if you were here, that we'll summarize it, that we see captivity. That this is an occasion for Israel to be honest about loss and pain. And this week we see God overcome those who try to hold him. This victory, this rising up of God, evokes the exodus, how God breaks the bondage for his people. And it also foreshadows Christ, 
the one who goes into exile and goes into death to fight the powers to release us from our bondage. The ark reminds us of God rescuing his people from all that would hold us. And for that reason, even thousands of years later, this narrative, this story, speaks to our hearts. If we let it speak, it will speak hope to our hearts. It will speak hope in the midst of our discouragement and despair. So let's look at our passage from 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 12. You can follow in your order of worship or in your Bible. This is the second part of the journey of the Ark of God. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up besides Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was heavy up there. The men who did not die were sick with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we come as your people who need to hear from you. Lord, there are many voices in our life, voices within and around us, but Lord, we come and confess and acknowledge that what we need is to hear your voice, and that we pray by your word and through your spirit that you would speak to us this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning as we make our way through this story, this journey of the ark, I want us to, to look at uh, three movements. First, we'll see the, kind of the reminder of the captivity. Then we'll see God's work in the temple. And finally, we can talk about what does this mean? <laughs> what does it say about who God is? All right, so first, the captivity. The ark narrative turns upward, as you see in our chapter. Pretty quickly, we start hearing positive things happening, at least for the God of Israel, but not before restating what has happened in the opening verse, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they took the Ark and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it before Dagon. An army marching. That's where we need to start 
picturing in our mind. I asked you to picture a boat. Now I'm asking you to picture an army marching, not languishing, not in fatigue, not with drooped soldiers, shoulders, but with joy. As they get closer and closer to home, their march becomes a parade, becomes a celebration. That army, if we can picture such a movement, that army is the army of the Philistines, Israel's neighbors to the west. They were known for having superior weapons at that time, and they used those resources to oppress Israel, to be a constant struggle for Israel. Now victorious, the Philistines march to their shrine at Ashdod, but they are in no hurry. They relish each step. This is a celebration for them and for their people. And the opening verse wants us to remember, though, that this is terrible. This has been miserable for the Israelites. We were told last chapter they were defeated in battle. Not just defeated, but 30,000 soldiers were left dead on the field of battle. And the ark of God was captured. Such sorrow and loss is summarized at the end of chapter 4. It's saying the glory of Israel has gone into exile. The glory, the splendor has gone into captivity. Such an announcement not only speaks to Israel's loss, but points to the work of God for his people. So here where we see God connecting and being represented by the ark, instead of Israel going into exile, the ark did. Instead of Israel going into captivity, the Lord went into captivity, taking on the curse for his people. Israel suffered the humiliation of defeat, and the Lord shares it. And the cries of the people, they say, those who are my enemies have hunted me like a bird. They have flung me alive into a pit and hurled stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. This was the lamentation of the people. And in the ark's journey, we see God identifying with this lament, with his people entering into their defeat, their sinking, their loss. Remember that parade. The, the ark of God is captured as a trophy. It's the center of a celebration by the Philistines, perhaps even carried on in a caged wagon. The God of the Exodus looking between bars as the procession takes it back to the Philistine temple. A humiliating walk. We can imagine the Philistine people on the sidewalks cheering. They point and they celebrate what they have captured. And in that captured ark, if we look closely, if you and I have eyes to see, we see imagery of Jesus. Do you remember his cross? Do you remember his rest and beating and humiliation? Do you remember that he was made to make a long walk, not just to get to the place of his death, but that he could be jeered and mocked, that he could be celebrated as the one who was being crushed by Rome? Like Jesus upon the Roman cross, so the ark of God here is taken as a trophy an action meant to humiliate and to affirm the powers of the day. Jesus on the cross is a sign of the powers of Rome. The ark of God captured is a sign for the Philistines. The glory has gone into exile, captivity, humiliated and ashamed. We cannot overstate what is being communicated by this captivity. The victory is political and by military action, but it ends, the parade ends, with a religious act. 
You see, the, the priests of Dagon are there to receive the parade, to receive the glory, and they accept the trophy of the ark, and they place it beside their chief god, Dagon. We don't need to be a student of the ancient Near East to grasp what's happening in that moment. Yahweh, represented by the ark, is the defeated god, placed beside the superior victorious god, Dagon. Like an honored servant, Yahweh is allowed to stand beside Dagon and his house. And so we see this captivity, we're reminded of it, but then our passage changes, and we see that the journey begins to take a different direction, that something victorious is happening for God and the temple. After the battle, the long march, the parade and the party, the crowd makes its way home. All of them go home, the soldiers, the priests, those celebrating, and night falls. And now comes darkness and quiet to imagine a place without electric light, the, the darkness and the stillness for hours and hours. And morning arrives and the people of Ashdod rise early. And what do they find? Behold, Dagon has fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. The text says the people, not the priests, so maybe the celebration was going to continue for a second day that many people had gathered to see again the thing that they had captured. But what do they find? Dagon, face down, bowing with his nose pressed to the floor. What does this mean? Surely this is an accident, right? We can imagine the murmuring, a shift in the stonework. Something happened in the temple so that they pick up Dagon and they put him back in his place. You can maybe even imagine the priest, perhaps a little bit embarrassed, quickly putting things back the way they're supposed to be. And Dagon stays there throughout the day. And I, think, I can imagine, at least, as those who are kind of locking up at the end of the night, those who are leaving, you know, check, make sure one more time that he's in where he's supposed to be. No more falling. Again, the night and the hours of quiet. And again, the people will rise early, and behold, Dagon again has fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time it's worse. His head and hands are broken off. Symbolically, the Philistine god has been disarmed, broken. This time on the third day, the Philistines do not try to re restore him or not put Dagon back in its spot. Rather, they conclude, our passage says, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain here. It must go, for his hand is hard against us and our God. As we think about the move from captivity to this kind of victorious or strong action, I want us to think about what this can mean. What does this strange story mean? And I think it starts by us noticing the language about the night. The night. Do you notice how the verses are both restrained yet powerful? There's much more here than is even said. The passage does not explain, does not tell us the details of the night, but the message is clear. The defeated God, the one set beside, has overcome. Has overcome the victorious Dagon in his own temple. Key part of this powerful victory is that it occurred at night and the hours of quiet and darkness. What do we think about the night and the darkness of our passage? 
Well, I came across an article recently called Raiders of the Office Park. Raiders of the Office Park. A title like that, you have to stop and at least check out what it's saying, right? Well, the author starts by saying that your office is a den of thieves. Your office is a den of thieves. This author suggested that workplace theft is on the rise. <laughs> and that in one survey, they asked what things had been stolen. And workers confessed from things, anything from pencils to tape to staplers, light bulbs, coffee, toilet paper, Oreo cookies, Windex, and my favorite, a Christmas tree. <laughs> the survey also highlighted that different times of the year point out different things being stolen, that tape theft increases during the holidays when gifts need to be wrapped, and theft of notebooks and glue go up at the start of the school year when kids need those back-to-school supplies. Such items sneak out, right? They, they slip into our bags and make their way out of the office. Why do I tell you that? Well, I tell you that to think about this idea of things quietly going away, hidden in our bags, our briefcases, kind of being snuck or hidden out. And I say that as a contrast, because those things happen kind of in cover and, and quiet, but that's not what the nighttime means in our passage. The night is not a way to refer to hiding or sneaking here. But in the night, we are reminded that that's when humans rest, when you and I lay down. It's when we do not see and we do not know what's happening. But God in his power acts and God works. In the night, apart from human agency, apart from human power, apart from human activities and ideas, God is the one who faces and overcomes that which seeks to hold him. Such actions affirm that the God who has been exiled, the God who has been captured, is in fact Lord over all. And doing it in the night underscores that it is not dependent upon the Israelites, not dependent upon you or me or anyone else lending aid to God, but that God, apart from human power, has become victorious. Why do you look for the living among the dead. He is not here. He is risen. Why do you look for Yahweh beside Dagon? It is not so. In the morning, the Philistines come expecting to celebrate the defeated Lord of Israel. But he was not there. He was not content being beside another. Such power, such rulers, such enemies cannot hold him. And we might try to grasp, we might try to name this nighttime work of God. How does the scripture speak about it? We can think of the Exodus and think about the plagues that arrive. Or we can think especially of Passover, the activity of God to free Israel from bondage. But I want us especially to think of Jesus and how he enters the night of death. He enters the night of death facing the powers, the sting of death, facing the cruel rejection of the world's powers that do not want him around. Speaking of the night of God acting in the quiet, in the places that we cannot see or know, Hebrews 2 says that Jesus entered the night to destroy the one who has power over death. That is the devil. That Jesus entered the night to deliver all of us through the, who would become slaves through the fear of death. That he would deliver us from lifelong slavery. Jesus entered the stronghold of all that claims us, our sin, our death, our mistreatment. 
Jesus enters the night, sunk in death, to show himself greater. Think about it. They had thought they had crushed him. They thought, like that parade, they could taunt him and taunt us, calling us sinners, calling us failures, calling us that we are on our own, that we are alone to carry our shame and our burdens, alone to face our own death. See, that's what it means that the powers were trying to hold Jesus and hold us, that they would be the ones who would get to say who you are and what your life will be. A broken man or woman, a sinner, a failure, alone. And Jesus enters into the night of death through the cross. And in Colossians 2, we're told that he puts those powers to shame. Through the cross, he actually parades them, saying that he is victorious over them, and that he will call you and me brothers and sisters, that we will be called sinners who are forgiven and righteous, that we'll be called not those who are by themselves or alone or orphans, but children of God. It's a chance for you and I to meditate as we think about who God is, to meditate all that would seek to stand over you, all that would seek to stand over us and tell us who we are. Those things must bow down to our God. That God alone has the final say of who he is and what he does for his people. It's interesting that the hands and arms of Dagon are broken. Our passage consistently mentions the hands of the Lord. Did you notice that? A way of speaking of the Lord's power and the Lord's action. The Lord is not content to crush and dismember Dagon, but the hand that toppled Dagon is now heavy against the Philistines. What's happening in the second passage of our part of our passage? You see, the ark is making its way back home. Think about this. Without the Israelites' intervention, the ark has removed itself from the temple of Dagon. And without the Israelites' intervention, the ark will make its way back home. It will complete its journey to the land of promise to its own temple, not because the Israelite army is strong, but by its own power. Like the plagues in Egypt that moved Pharaoh to release his slaves, so now God sends plagues in the Philistines such that they want the ark to go away as fast as possible. They've heard about what God did in Egypt and they are afraid. What are we to do with the ark? Send it away. Send it to Gath. I kind of think that Gath hadn't heard what was going on, so maybe Gath won't really know what's happening. They send it there, but soon they are aware, and they send it to Ekron, but Ekron's like, no, we've heard about this. Don't even let it come in. Send it away. We don't want it. We can't hold it. Send it back to its own land. The exile, the captivity, the humiliation of the Lord turns into a victory parade throughout the land of the Philistines, showing that no one can hold him. No one can hold him. And such a narrative, such a journey, is a witness against despair. It's a witness for hope, a witness that tells us that we are not alone. Who is our God? The ark, the journey, invites us to ask, who is our God? 
Last week, we thought about the captivity. We remember that God is the God who bears. Who in Jesus, God bears our flesh, bears the cross. God bore our sin and our sorrow, bore our bondage. That God takes these things on to himself, that he went into exile. And invites us, invites you and I to be honest about our struggles, our fears, our pain. But the Lord enters the night. But that's not the whole story. The full journey displays something different and asks again, who is our God? And our God, the Father of Christ, is the one who enters and breaks the powers of the night. By taking the intense weight of his people's humiliation and bondage on himself, God triumphed over the Philistines, over the powers and rulers of the day, that he might free his people. Who is our God? Our God is the one who carries. He doesn't just bear our burdens, but he carries us. What do we see in our strange story? The Lord does not need you to support or carry him. The Lord does not need his people to overcome the powers. If any carrying will be done, it will be done by God himself. The Lord's victory and his return from exile is utterly independent of his people. And this is good news. This is good news for you and for me today. That God himself faces our enemies and powers. It is good news that this victory and this overcoming, this refusal to let the powers define us or God, is not based in us. Let us meditate and let us receive that good news and let us rest that all those things that would seek to name us or tell us who we are must bow down to our God, the one who calls us as his people and says that we can call him Father. In Jeremiah, idols, false gods, false hopes, we could think of many of them, whether they're actual things like Dagon or other things like money and reputation, having a certain type of family or a certain type of image or a certain type of home. In Jeremiah, we're told the idols, false gods, false hopes are burdens that they must be carried. We must carry them and we must stand them up. But in contrast, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, he need not be carried. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of Israel, God says, who has borne me by, from before your birth, who's carried you from the womb, even to your old age. I am he, says the Lord. And to your gray hairs, I will carry you. To your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear and I will carry and I will save, says the Lord. Who is our God? He's the one who bears our flesh and our sorrows, but he is the one who carries, who saves, who makes us. Let us rejoice and let us rest in this God and let us meditate today in the face of our despair and our worries that God is the one who enters the night and who overcomes. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, that you are good, and that, Lord, that you are a God even in your holiness that draws near. Thank you for going into the exile and captivity into the night on our behalf. And thank you for rising up as the one who is above all things. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.